Hey all, welcome back for part two of this two-part series on the Sumerians, our first series for the Human History Podcast. Uh, part one, I introduced you to the Sumerians and how they came to settle the lands between two major rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and to some of ancient Sumer's most memorable figures like Gilgamesh and Abram, Gudea and Ernemu. Um, part two, we're going to get into the key events and innovations that came to us from the Sumerians. The world's first city, the wheel, writing, imposing stone architecture, all are firsts credited by many to originate in ancient Sumer. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, like many aspects of ancient history, the title for first anything is often up for debate, and it's no different for the designation for the world's first city. While there is reasonable arguments to be made for certain Indus Valley or Central Asian sites, which we'll discuss when we talk about those civilizations later on, uh, there are many who place the first city in the proverbial cradle of civilization in the southern plains of the Euphrates just north of the Persian Gulf. Uh, we talked about the city in part one of the episode as the city whose King Gilgamesh failed twice before finally succeeding in expanding his empire, only to die shortly afterwards, passing the largest Sumerian empire up to that point onto his son. The city he first ruled was Uruk, U-R-U-K. Uh, Uruk is about 150 miles south of Baghdad, a little less than 200 miles from the northern tip of the Persian Gulf. Uh, it used to be right on the banks of the Euphrates, but the stream has shifted so that the river is now about 12 miles west, west of the ancient location. Its history is not surprisingly not entirely clear, uh, there's some archaeological evidence to support the idea that people inhabited the area as early as the 6th millennium BC, uh, but we do know that from around 4,000 to 2,800, uh, Uruk was a major Mesopotamian city, possibly the first real city in human history. Uh, regardless of the specific timeline, archaeologists are able to provide a semblance of an idea of how the city came to be it's pretty likely the process was mirrored in other urban areas, with Uruk just jumping out ahead and becoming the biggest, the earliest. Uh, you'll remember the shifting coastline of the Persian Gulf and how the early peoples there had nothing but mud, water, and reeds to build with. Uh, they used bricks to build primitive mud houses, which formed villages, and as people made their way into the area, the villages turned into small towns. Even more people made their way into the area, and agricultural techniques from the Semites began to take hold. Uh, these small towns turned into small cities, and those bricks that they first used to build some of the earliest settlements of humans on Earth uh, would eventually be used to build the walls and the temples and the palaces of the first cities. Now, as we said, Uruk became a major Mesopotamian city, and not just the largest, but the most important one for a time uh, during the Uruk period, during about 4000 BC, and 2800 BC. Um, some suggest the city was founded by King Enmerkar around 4500 BC, but Bauer puts Enmerkar's reign closer to sometime after 2800, according to her sources, uh, after the city had already risen to its prominence. Uh, you'll remember Enmerkar is the son of Mezkai Gasher, uh, the king of Uruk during its golden age. Uh, he tried and failed to expand the empire and territory or wealth the way his father had, and he died without an heir. And then the throne was taken by a man named Lugobanda, uh, the warrior who fought 
alongside Enmerkar in the lost battle for Arata, and who would be claimed by Gilgamesh as a father that he lived probably more than a hundred years earlier. Uh, so whether Enmerkar founded Uruk or came much later in its timeline, uh, we know that the city did achieve some prominence around the middle of the third millennium BC. The city itself is pretty remarkable for its amazing architecture, uh, including huge walls, uh, which are thought to have actually been built by Gilgamesh, uh, and its designation as a host for a few other major firsts in our species' history. As we said, some consider it to be the world's first city. It's thought to be the location of the oldest known cylinder seals, which is a piece of clay with a unique seal pressed onto it, used to designate uh, an individual's property or as a signature. Uh, there are some sources, though, that put that technology earlier in the late Neolithic, uh, from around 7600 to 6000 BC. Uh, we see, arguably, of course, the first system of writing in cuneiform uh, and ziggurats, which were the giant ancient temples that we'll talk a little bit about later on. Uh, outside of and alongside Uruk, uh, ancient Sumer brought us some of human history's most amazing inventions. Uh, one of the more groundbreaking has been dubbed by many the greatest invention in human history because of the way it transformed transportation. The interesting thing is, though, that the wheel was actually invented for a much different purpose. Uh, evidence indicates they were created to serve as potter's wheels around 3500 BC in Mesopotamia, 300 years before someone figured out to use them for chariots. Uh, that's from smithsonianmag.org. Um, from Wikipedia, true potter's wheels, which are freely spinning and have a wheel and axle mechanism, were developed in Mesopotamia by 4200 to 4000 BC. The oldest surviving example, which was found in Ur, dates to approximately 3100 BC. Evidence of wheeled vehicles appeared in the late 4th millennium BC. Depictions of wheeled wagons found on clay tablet pictographs at the Iana district of Uruk in the Sumerian civilization of Mesopotamia are dated between 3700 and 3500 BC. So there's a lot of debate, surprise, surprise, uh, inconsistency when it comes to the invention of the wheel. While it seems to be generally accepted that the first wheels were used for pottery in ancient Mesopotamia, dates can range among sources from around 3500 BC to 4200 BC, with some dating putting clay tablets found in Uruk depicting wheeled vehicles between 3700 and 3500 BC. So either way, we know that the world's first wheels uh, used for pottery eventually led to the invention of wheeled vehicles by at least the middle of the 4th millennium BC, and that 5500 years later, it's still used as a cliche for the most essential, formative, and purely genius invention of all time. So the next thing I want to talk about is an interesting comparison to the wheel and that it was an extremely important foundational innovation for the human race in that we still rely on it today in every single part of the world, uh, essentially. Uh, the big difference is, though, that while the wheel has really not changed in almost 6,000 years, Writing is one of the most complex human creations that we have. And if you include emojis and GIFs, like I do in about 96% of my text conversations, uh, it's not hard to imagine how familiar a wheel might seem to an ancient Sumerian uh, while writing 
would be almost unrecognizable as what it is. Um, so with that, let's get into the origins of writing. Um, so we have a society advanced to the point of developing agriculture, which allows for settlement, which eventually turns into larger networks of villages and eventually cities. Uh, cities grow and societies become more complex, more complex forms of communication become necessary. Uh, and as Bauer explains, the early cylinder seals, which are like an early form of writing, but are much more basic and based on simple symbols and shapes that only convey incredibly simple messages, uh, eventually leads to what can confidently be called a system of writing, uh, what we call cuneiform. So the progression, progression seems to have gone something like this. Um, from cylinder seals, the Sumerians advanced a level with their ability to count large quantities of objects. This involved keeping a tally of an object like a sack of grain or livestock on a small round counter. Uh, as you accumulated counters, you could keep them together in a large envelope type clay container with tallies on the outside marking the number of counters inside. In this way, larger and larger amounts of objects could more easily be kept track of. But as cities developed, ownership became more complex. Uh, more people meant more types of things that could be owned and transferred. So there became a need for pictograms along with tallies. And then you see the reemergence of the seals being used to represent things like witnessing a sale or some other transaction. Uh, imagine the old seals, which you know used to just say, this is mine. You had a cylinder seal and you stamped it and it said, this is mine. Uh, now that same seal that you would put on your cylinder seal could now be put at the bottom of a tablet, which had a bunch of pictures on it that represented one person selling sacks of grain to another person. Uh, now that same seal didn't just say, this is mine. It actually said, I was here to witness the sale of this grain between these two people. And you can come to me if you have any questions on the matter. So, with the addition of these pictograms in combination to the seals and the tallies, you have an evolution of symbolic communication between humans that allows them to convey more complex messages by combining a seal system, which may have been around for thousands of years, with a pictographic system whose roots can really be said to go back tens of thousands of years to the earliest cave paintings. And while the economies and populations of the cities grew and they continued trade between them became necessary for even more symbols. Um, uh, Bauer characterizes what happens next as kind of a natural evolution of a simple dichotomy. Either your symbols just continue to multiply so that each stands for another individual word or your pictures evolve into a phonetic system where each symbol represents sounds so that each symbol is a part of a sound that makes a word rather than being a word itself. Um, it's thought that over the course of about 600 years, uh, the Sumerian symbols took this latter route and eventually turned into the phonetic system of writing that we call cuneiform. Uh, we call it cuneiform because in 1700, it's what a scholar in old Persian named Thomas Hyde called them. It's derived from the Latin for wedge-shaped which describes the look of the symbols, uh, but Hyde thought they were just kind of pretty decorations. Um, so it's thought that cuneiform has been around since about 3500 BC, uh, beginning more simply and kind of evolving into a system that could be used to express complex scenarios and emotions within around a 600 year period. 
um, from the ancient, uh, this is from the online ancient encyclopedia. Uh, by the time the priestess poet and Hedjuana, who lived 2285 to 2250 BCE, who wrote her famous hymns to Inanna in the Sumerian city of Ur, reasons behind the writer experiencing uh, cuneiform was sophisticated enough to convey emotional states such as love and adoration, betrayal and fear, longing and hope, as well as the precise reasons behind the writer experiencing such states. Uh, so it's clear that by the second half of the third millennium BC, cuneiform had advanced to the point of being a writing system not dissimilar to the ones we have today, uh, evolving from that combination of pictograms, tallies, and seals that we talked about a little earlier. Uh, and again, some people think that cuneiform actually developed specifically in Uruk, which would just add to the list of firsts that you can attribute to that city. Uh, and you can imagine, and of course these things happened over hundreds of years, um, and not always in an exactly linear fashion, but you can imagine you know, a family whose elders helped to settle the land near the river, a few hundred kilometers north of the Gulf, uh, and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren watched and helped turn the area into a collection of villages and witnessed the emergence of the wheel, first used for pottery. And their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren watched and helped turn that collection of villages into a city and witnessed the world's first stone architecture and the arrival of those cylinder seals, which were one of the earliest forms of societal pictographic communication. And their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren watched and helped build that city into a thriving metropolis while seeing those cylinder seals transform into a complex form of writing, seeing the first wheeled vehicles like chariots rolling through the streets, not to mention the world's first sailboats going in and out of the ports, world's first large stone structures, ziggurats, going up in the areas around the city. I mean, the oral history of a family in or around Uruk in the middle of the 3rd millennium BC would be truly something incredible to read. Uh, not least of all, to know what it would have been like to be around when something so fundamental and taken for granted in our time, like writing, was being developed. Um, I do want to point out this is an incredibly basic and quick and dirty version of the development of writing. Um, Bauer suggests a couple of books if you want to go a little bit deeper into it. Uh, Stephen Roger Fisher's A History of Writing. Uh, for something a little bit more readable, uh, check out CBF Walker's Cuneiform, Reading the Past. Um, and there's volume two in the series, which is Egyptian Hieroglyphs, Reading the Past by W.V. Davies. Um, so the next event I want to talk about is what some consider to be the end of the Sumerian era. Uh, I mentioned in the last episode that some historians talk about people like Gudea and Ernemu as being a part of a Neo-Sumerian era, which came after the Akkadian Empire. And while I'm going to save the deeper dive on the empire as a whole for a future episode, I do want to talk about the rise of the man who brought it about because it is an important moment in the history of the Sumerians and I think provides good insight and context to the world the Sumerians lived in. Uh, I want to talk about the rise of Sargon, who I definitely remember his name because it sounds close to Sauron. Uh, side note, I am not the biggest fan of those books or those movies. Um, anyways, uh, so Sumer in the 
mid third millennium BC can be classified as a constant struggle for power. Uh, for a long time, no one really gains any real advantage for any significant amount of time. Uh, sometime after Gilgamesh's son inherited the throne of Uruk, uh, it was conquered by Ur, and then Ur was conquered by the Elamites. Uh, the names of all the kings of Kish's next dynasty all having Elamite names, uh, which Kish is the main city in Sumer at this time and for a while, uh, and it was for a while, and its ruler generally claimed to rule all Sumer. Um, so a king of another Sumerian city, Adab, seems to have been able to mount some resistance to the Elamites and drove them out from his and several other cities. Um, it's not a whole lot written about this guy and his quote-unquote empire must have been pretty short-lived. Uh, the next matter really worth noting in the area is just a generic border dispute between cities of Lagash and Uma. Uh, for a couple hundred years or so, uh, they go back and forth over the land between them. You know, one city would take power for a while and then the other would come over and take it back and so on and so forth. Uh, eventually, the throne of Lagash went to a man named Arukajina. Uh, Arukajina was very socially conscious. Uh, he made efforts to restore the city from all the damage that was done by the years of war and the corruption that went along with it. Uh, he lowered taxes, forgave a bunch of debt, separated the priesthood from political power, which was a source of a lot of the corruption that was going on. And for all of this good that he did, he lost his throne. Uh, Uma had come to be ruled by a man named Lugal Zagesi, who marched on Lagash and took the city with apparently little resistance. Uh, all those efforts to aid the poor and remove power from the priests did not sit well with many powerful people in Lagash. Um, so... Lugal's, I guess, he was pretty amped up by how easy it was to take Lagash, um, and he turned his attention to expansion, uh, somewhat naturally, it seems. Um, he spent about 20 years fighting around Sumer, trying to gather as much territory as he could. Uh, after taking Lagash and then Uruk, uh, Lugul's, I guess, he turned his attention to Kish. Uh, the king at the time, a guy named Urzababa, uh, according to the stories, he apparently wet himself when he saw the army approaching his city, and not surprisingly, the city fell. Uh, his soldiers weren't exactly being idle, though. Uh, while Lugol's, I guess he was enjoying another easy victory, this time scooping up the crown jewel in Kish, uh, Urzababa's cupbearer, who in Sumerian society was like his right-hand man and his main advisor. Uh, he had gathered a bunch of soldiers and marched on Uruk. Uh, it took Lugos, I guess, a while to kind of realize what was happening. By the time he rode out with some soldiers to meet the cupbearer in the field, uh, the balance of power had already kind of shifted. He got taken down. He lost the battle. And the cupbearer, who, as I'm sure you've guessed by now, was Sargon, uh, declared himself the king of Kish and went down and took Ur and Uma and basically everything down to the Gulf. Um, he ended up building a new capital city somewhere in the northern plain so he could watch over his new empire. 
the city was called Agad, uh, which was later translated as Akkad, which gives us the name for Sargon's empire, which began in 2334 BC, the Akkadian Empire. Now, as I said, I'm going to go further into the Akkadians and their empire in another episode, uh, because I think they're very interesting. Uh, But for this episode, suffice to say, the effective end of the Akkadians came when the Gutians invaded and eventually sacked Agad in 2150. Though... There is some recent evidence to suggest that climate change may have played a hand in their ultimate end. Uh, Regardless, following the fall of a god, the Sumerian city-states began a campaign to reestablish themselves uh, in the region by kicking out the Gutians. Uh, It started with Gudea and Lagash uh, and followed shortly uh, with a man named Utuhagal, who was the king of Uruk. Uh, Unlike Gudea, who never really called himself a king and essentially acted more like a, a governor over his city. Uh, Atuhagal had plans to expand his rule beyond Uruk. Um, after he successfully booted all the Gutians from his city, uh, he sent soldiers fanning out all over Mesopotamia uh, to Eridu and Ur and probably as far north as Nippur. And this next next part you'll recognize from the last episode, but I do just want to, again, tell you a bit about Ur-Nammu because he was such an important figure in the resurgence of the Sumerian people uh, and one of the figures from ancient history whose legacy we can still see and touch today. Uh, so if you're all ur out or you're back-to-back in these and your memory is fresh, I'd say skip ahead a bit. Otherwise, stick around for a little ur refresher. Um, so after driving the Gutians out of Ur, uh, Utuhagal gave control of the city over to his son-in-law, who was Ur-Nammu. Uh, and as we said, some of the accounts mention a sudden death for Utuhagal with not a lot of details. And then they talk about Ur-Nammu stepping in and taking advantage of the power vacuum. Uh, but Bauer suggests from her sources that it's more likely that Ur-Nammu with enough soldiers at his disposal, sent them against Atuhagal and took the throne by force. Uh, could poss- could be possible that there was a sudden natural death and Ernemu was as his most trusted governor, the natural, and his son-in-law, the natural one to claim power. Uh, it also seems pretty reasonable that Ernemu could have used the incredibly hostile and fragile post-Akkadian chaos to seize power and establish himself as the next ruler. Uh, either way, as we said, once he was in power, Ernemu seems to have done a pretty remarkable job. Uh, from records, we can establish that while he did use his military in some instances to attain more land or absorb a smaller city, he was probably more likely to use negotiations and treaties to expand his empire. Uh, he also built a lot of temples to try and restore the favor of the gods to his city, along with new roads, walls, canals to bring in fresh water. Uh, it said that under his reign, Ur saw a revitalized economy and encouraged arts and culture to thrive in his city and the other cities under his control. Uh, his greatest project, though, was likely the temple he built for the moon goddess Inanna in the city of Ur. Uh, I mentioned it briefly in part one, measuring about 210 feet long, 150 feet wide, and over 100 feet tall, 
uh, the great ziggurat of Ur, uh, which probably completed by his son Shulgi, was just a gargantuan structure for the times. Um, so this was the beginning of the third dynasty of Ur, which is also known as the Sumerian Renaissance. Um, and since we're just on the topic, let's keep going a little on the ziggurats. Um, they began appearing in Mesopotamia as early as the 4th millennium BC, uh, with the White Temple ziggurat of Uruk being one of the earliest, uh, probably from around 3200 BC, possibly even later. Uh, the structures themselves resembled the step pyramids of Egypt. Uh, they generally have square, rectangle, or oval bases between two and seven stories or layers and descending size built directly on top of one another, which gives a stepped appearance and leaving the top of the structure flat. Now, the size is varied. Um, the great ziggurat of Ur is probably the largest one built. Um, Mesopotamian ziggurats were not places of ceremony or public worship, but they were more the dwelling places of the gods, and each city had its own patron god. Um, I'll include some pictures of the ziggurats on the Instagram page, so make sure to follow us there at Human History Pod. Uh, fun story, actually. There have been two restorations of the great ziggurat of Ur. Uh, the first was by King Nabonidus in the 6th century BC. Uh, second was 2,400 years later in the 1980s by Saddam Hussein. Uh, according to KhanAcademy.org, uh, Saddam, quote, restored the facade of the massive lower foundation of the ziggurat, including the three monumental staircases leading up to the gate at the first terrace, end quote. Since then, though, uh, there has been some damage to the structure. Uh, during the Gulf War in 91, Saddam tried to use it as protection, and he parked some MiG fighter jets next to it, hoping that the American coalition wouldn't want to destroy such an important ancient monument. Uh, but surprise, surprise, they didn't really care. Uh, the temple did sustain some damage from the bombardment that followed. Uh, so next, I want to go back to Ernemu for just a second. Well, not really. I want to go to his son, Shulgi, uh, and talk about the reign of the third dynasty of Ur and the eventual fall and end of the Sumerian era. Uh, which, to reiterate at this point, some would say I'm referring to the Neo-Sumerian Empire. Um, Ernemu's empire was expanded and strengthened even further by Shulgi, um, who is said to have reigned for about 47 years before he passed the throne to his son, who, as you can imagine, was already pretty old at that point. Um, so after a relatively short rule of about eight years, Shulgi's grandson, Shusin, inherited the throne. Um, and it's during the reign of Shusin that the Neo-Sumerian Empire really began to crumble. Uh, part of the problem was completely natural. Uh, for centuries, at least, uh, the Sumerian plain cities had used irrigation systems to grow enough wheat to survive. They would dig channels from the riverbanks into reservoirs, which would collect the rising water so they could use it during drier times of the year and in drier years. Uh, the problem is that the water in the Tigris and Euphrates rivers was slightly salty. So when it sat in reservoirs, it collected even more salt from the land around it, which was really rich in minerals. Uh, that water would be spread over the fields where a lot of it would absorb into the earth 
but some of it would be evaporated by the sun, which left more salt behind than was there before. So eventually, there was so much salt in the ground that the crops began to fail. Uh, this process is called salinization. And there's, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's the general, the general idea. Um, there are some accounts from prior to 2000 BC that show the Sumerians tried to switch to barley, which they knew had a higher tolerance for the salty water, but eventually even the barley wouldn't grow. Uh, I imagine it a lot like Interstellar, if you've seen that movie, where there's a blight that strikes down every major crop except corn, which they know will eventually stop growing too. Um, except the people of ancient Sumer didn't have NASA waiting to bail them out. Uh, instead, they had to just watch slowly as their crops yielded less and less. This meant that there was less grain to feed livestock who were needing to be brought further and further away to graze. Uh, the situation brought the Sumerians in direct conflict with roving Amorites from the west. Uh, the lack of grain meant not just a hungry and more fractious population, but it also meant less tax revenue, which made it kind of hard to continue paying soldiers, which then made it difficult to repel any Amorite invasions and bring rebel cities back into the fold. So by the time Shu Sin's son, Ibi Sin, came to the throne, the entire pretense of protecting the further borders of the empire was completely ignored. Uh, by the eighth year of his reign, uh, Ibi Sin lost Ishnuna in the far north, a treaty with the Elamites, which went back 50 years, Uma and Nippur, the sacred holy city. Uh, at one point, the famine in Ur was so bad that Ibi Sin sent one of his most trusted commanders, Ishbi Era, to the north to gather some supplies and provide some relief for Ur. He took with him most of the city's food and soldiers. Pretty soon after leaving, he, Ishbi Era declared himself the first king of the Isin dynasty, uh, with its capital at Isin further north, almost to Nippur, and taking with him all of Ur's former northern territories. At this point, there really wasn't much Ibi Sin could do to stop him. Uh, as you can imagine, after this, Ibi Sin is not looking like a very strong leader, and Ur is not looking like a strong city. So in 2004 BC, the Elamites, who've been essentially under the thumb of the Sumerians for decades and centuries, uh, rained down from the west and destroyed Ur. Um, this is from Bauer. Quote, they swept over the Tigris, burned down the walls of Ur, burned the palace, leveled the sacred places, and brought a final and shattering end to the Sumerian era. Um, she also shares an excerpt from a later poem, uh, which laments the fall of Ur and of, quote, the death not just of a city, but of an entire culture, end quote. Corpses were piled at the lofty city gates. On the streets where the festivals had been held, heads lay scattered. Where dances had been held, bodies were stacked in heap. In the river, dust has gathered. No flowing water is carried through the city. The plain that was covered in grass has become cracked like a kiln. So from as early as 7,400 years ago, a people's settled themselves on the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates 
at the northern tip of the Persian Gulf and proceeded to invent modes of agriculture, cities, writing, the wheel. It gave us immortal figures like Gilgamesh and Abram, seemingly indestructible architecture from kings who reigned over 4,000 years ago. With the exception of about 200 years during the Akkadian rule, Sumerians dominated the land known today as the Fertile Crescent, the cradle of civilization, for around 3,000 years. Uh, Sumerians have to be considered one of the most impressive and important civilizations to have emerged. And their offshoots and contemporaries deserve episodes for themselves, which they will get. Uh, for now, I hope you enjoyed part two of this episode on the Sumerians. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Please check out some of our other episodes with more coming soon, including the Ancient Egyptians series. And if you did enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to follow us on Instagram at Human History Pod and subscribe to our channel on whatever platform you may be listening. Uh, I appreciate you. And as always, be excellent to each other.